This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we support design engineers and make lightning protection easy. You're listening to the Struck Podcast. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And here on Struck, we talk about everything aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. All right, welcome back to the Struck Aerospace Engineering Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. On today's episode, we're going to talk a little more about the Qatar saga. Really interesting development now that uh, they placed an order with Boeing, a very big order, uh, after canceling their Airbus order last week. So we'll talk through that. Also, some new video released on the extent of the paint, paint issues which are pretty substantial um, from this YouTube video we've seen. We'll also talk about the scramble for cargo aircraft as shipping prices increase, uh, some really new efficiency gains uh, with Boeing and others. Uh, So we'll see how that plays out with different types of aircraft, maybe moving into the cargo sector. We'll talk about FedEx asking the FAA for permission to add anti-missile systems to some of their cargo planes, which is a scary proposition. And then our EVTOL segment, we'll talk about Joby. They're uh, really starting to get out there in the public eye and they're saying that they're ready for some test flights over the San Francisco Bay. Army is also uh, partnering with Beta, and then we'll talk about some of the need for new pilots uh, as air taxis start to become you know, closer to our, our, our present-day future. Um, so, Alan, obviously the Qatar thing has been uh, carrying on. It's been our this big saga, and really like Boeing is kind of the winner here because last week uh, Airbus canceled an order, kind of said, hey, we want to cut ties with you, it seemed like. And now, uh, very quickly, Qatar has put in an order for uh, 5737-10s and 5777s. So that's a big order. I mean, 100 planes going to Boeing now. This is seemingly getting really expensive for Airbus. It is, and I don't know if Airbus really cares because it seems like they've broken all connections with uh, Qatar Airways and Airbus may be totally fine with it. That's what it seems to be happening. And, and the the Boeing uh, announcement happened at the White House yesterday, and that would not that normally wouldn't happen. So you you kind of feel in this sort of national thing happen in the United States where um, Qatar's over here in the states, and Boeing is there, and they're signing signing the agreements in the White House, and that usually doesn't happen. Uh, I, I remember that happening in any any recent times. So I, I'm not sure I'm not sure Airbus cares. <laughs> really, you can make a big deal of it. Boeing can make a big deal of it, but I think Airbus is a okay with how this is going down. Well, and it's just a, a memorandum of understanding right now, which uh, apparently doesn't commit Qatar Airways. I mean, is that a big deal? I mean, is this could that just be a PR play? Like they could pull out? I, I can't imagine. Obviously, they needed new planes. You know, the, the Airbus order that they canceled wasn't. Uh, they weren't playing around like they needed. They obviously need new new jets. But um, I mean, do you see this going through or is this just like, hey, we want to get something out here to further inflict pain on Airbus if we can um, without having to commit too deeply to it? I don't I think they're going to actually go through with the orders. So that's the feeling. Right. And especially with the freighter order that 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 seems pretty definite. There's a lot of discussion about that. Today, obviously, uh, but I, you know, the, the White House getting in the middle of that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I understand Boeing want to make a big deal of it because they're trying to regroup and show that they have dominance in the sector, which they don't right now, but they will. It'll, it'll ebb and flow. It naturally does. But, you know, the United States and France aren't having such great relations at the moment. I don't think you 
sort of spike the football here, to use an NFL analogy on France. I don't think that makes any sense to anybody. So that's what it, that's what it felt like yesterday. Like we're spiking the football in a game that's not over. Let's let's everybody calm down a little bit. I think it's great for Boeing to get the order. Obviously, they needed it. It shows a little positive press. Uh, but Airbus makes great airplanes. Let's just don't dispute about that, right? So it's going to be a very competitive race over the next. 10, 20 years. Well, let's talk a little bit about the the paint stuff that's come out. So uh, Airways kind of released a, a video statement on the A350 uh, paint issues. And so they had this like a minute and a half video. It's unlisted on YouTube. Uh, so I, I guess people are only finding that through certain articles. But it shows a pretty, pretty wide range of damage. I mean, it, there's a lot. Some of it looks really rough. Um, I mean, what's has that changed anything? as far as your take on the situation or is it kind of just this is what we already knew well i think it's more expansive than what i had seen previously what i had shown in the press particularly on reuters was uh, small areas of where paint has come off particularly around the winglet that's one area or around the static dischargers which is not abnormal honestly for composite airplanes so that all all kind of made sense and remember that any airplane today is not made in one place. That there, It's an accumulation of parts that are all sent to be assembled at final assembly at Toulouse or up in Seattle, Boeing, or in South Carolina, I suppose, now too. Uh, so you, it, having pain issues and what it looked like in the video was it was limited to certain sections of the airplane. So it may be limited to certain suppliers in the Airbus chain. And that's what it appeared like, that there's there's segments, supplier segments that are having issues with um, the expanded metal mesh sticking to the surface, maybe combining with some process issues, and that also relating to the way paint is adhering. The, the images of the A350 airplane, and I've only seen this one, so I'm not, it's not saying it's indicative of all of them, but this A350 on the top of the fuselage, kind of in the midsection, just looked like it was the, the paint was wavy and I've never seen paint that in that large of an area have a waviness issue like that which makes you think there's to me it seems like a manufacturing a process issue would be hard-pressed to think Airbus has a engineering problem here yeah that did that that I remember that part of it and it, it reminds me of like when you have too much moisture in your bathroom and the paint just starts to peel or like you use indoor paint for an outdoor spot and like you thought it was gonna be fine but it got a lot of water splashed on it yeah, it, it, that there seemed like uh, yeah a, a wide swath of different types of issues, because um, obviously some of those like they showed some really tiny like pinhole, um, you know, paint peels, and it seems like like you said this isn't completely uncommon. Like some of that's probably going to fall within normal wear and tear. I mean, it's in airplanes; they're well used; they're in terrible conditions up in the sky, um, and it seems like they probably included everything under the sun that could possibly look rough. But then some of it looks very out of the ordinary, like you said. It does. And, and as the story unfolds and we're learning more and more, obviously, what, what we're hearing is uh, Qatar sent an airplane, an A350, to Ireland to get it painted. And when they stripped the airplane down, they saw all these surface defects. And then uh, the airplane was sent to Toulouse for Airbus to look at it slash repaint it. And there it sat. Uh, so Airbus must think either they, they, they don't, think the customer deserves the levels that level of service or they just saw the future of we're already having problems with Qatar Airways and this is never going to go well so why even get into it that that's it that's what appears what's happened it's very unique 
situation with the customer. So you mentioned, uh, obviously, the, the, the order for the 777s uh, probably going to go through, and that seems to be a pretty impl- impressive plane, although it's been a little bit um, you know delayed. Uh, so obviously, with shipping costs going sky high and the supply chain issues, everyone looking for, for some sort of relief there, um, it looks like Boeing is really making a push with some of their 777 offerings, and it looks like they've got a really big jump in efficiency. Is it right that maybe 10, 10% on their 777s? Yeah, the GE on the engine and the GE9X is, has really squeaked out efficiency gains. Uh, they're saying upwards of 10% on, on fuel burn. That's a lot. It's just a tremendous amount of savings on fuel. And the and the 777 freighter version is going to have a carbon fiber wing, and they think there's some weight savings to be had there. Uh, people are making comparisons between a, a theoretical A350-type uh, Airbus freighter to this 777 freighter and saying the Airbus may have an advantage in total weight because they make the whole airplane out of carbon fiber or large sections out of carbon fiber. That may or may not be true, right? I, I I'm one on the carbon fiber uh, design aspect that there are places where carbon fiber makes sense and there's other places where it doesn't make sense in terms of weight, in terms of weight. It may be lighter in, in specifics, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's heavier. So uh, I, I would say Boeing has a very competitive product. They've been in the freighter business for a long time. That's one of their key lines of sales is the freighter. And Airbus hasn't done too much in the freighter business. And, and Boeing's going to protect that like crazy. And, and GE, I think GE had like a, just for the engines alone, it's like $6 billion, $7 billion in engines and services alone for that order. That's a major, major order. But, and, and the, Dan, I, I just kind of go slightly aside here. You know, we hear a lot of things about, uh, on the environmental aspect of airplanes, that they're not, airplanes are not doing enough to save the environment. Like, come, really? Really? <laughs> You're making, we've been flying airplanes for 100 years-ish, 120 years, I guess, at this point. And and all of a sudden, we're making like 10% gains in, in energy efficiency. Other industries just haven't been able to do that. And I, I, you got to give the airplane companies some credit and GE some credit here. There's nothing more expensive than fuel. It's such a big driver in terms of efficiency and cost that there's a natural economic drive to reduce the amount of fuel burn and the amount of emissions out the back end. So the airplane industry, I think, is doing a, a really good job of of paying attention to those environmental aspects at the same time. Yeah, it is a weird it is a weird thing, and I think it 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 comes mostly from the uninformed public, you know, of which I'd consider myself a you know, member. But you know, you say, oh well, why why is airlines why are they exempt from this? You know, why they're oh look, you just look at the volume. If you know, you find a good infographic on you know mass media uh, newspaper and just like oh. Air, airlines account for 25 percent i'm that's i'm making that number up but you know of all emissions globally it's like well they need to reduce that and like you said there's already pressure to do that because it's so expensive just like if you looked at all the the regular car you know cars cars and trucks they also have a gigantic amount of emissions um and if gas was 13 dollars a gallon you bet people would be selling their pickup trucks they'd be selling their suvs they'd be selling their humvees and looking for efficiency. I mean, they would be doing it. But when gas was cheaper, people were like, yeah, I don't care. I, I like my truck. I'll I'll get 16 miles to the gallon or nine miles to the gallon in some cases. And no big deal. But the airlines, like you said, have never been like that because it's so expensive and it's so core to their business to 
whether it's getting a package or, or a human across you know the world, they want to burn less fuel to do it. Absolutely, yeah. It just seems like it's this all or nothing craze right now with with good good green energy press that it needs to be like oh we got to get rid of all these emissions where it's like people don't realize that there's a fun like you said a fundamental difference between what an aircraft can do with the energy density requirements that it has versus a car you know if a car runs out of battery it just rolls to a stop and you're very inconvenienced and you have to scan through twitter for an hour while you wait for the tow truck but if that happens on a on a plane uh, a lot of people die and it's a much bigger problem. Yeah. So it, it is an interesting difference and you wonder if there'll be any kind of push to educate the, the public on that. Probably, probably not, but I don't know. Airlines are, they, they deserve a little bit of a, uh, of leeway. They do. And that's the effort to use sustainable air aviation fuels is a part of that push. Not only making big efficiency gains in terms of the engine performances and what's coming out the back end, they're also switching to sustainable fuels. So it's sort of inevitable that aviation has been and can will continue to be one of the cleanest forms of transportation. It just is for what it does. You can't, there's, what are you going to replace it with? You're going to replace it with ships or you're going to replace it with uh, trains, you know? Yeah. There's just some things need to be moved by air. Well, speaking of cargo, uh, FedEx is asking the FAA for permission to put lasers on some of their cargo planes that will throw off heat-seeking missiles. Uh, you know, they mentioned that a 2000, in 2003, a DHL plane was hit after taking off from Baghdad. Somehow they returned to the airport, which uh, kind of blows my mind. I guess maybe the damage wasn't that significant. It seems like miss missiles, missiles are, yeah, I can't imagine a plane can keep going, but why now? Is, I mean, I haven't heard of much. Obviously, the issue with Belarus, you know, redirecting a plane and sort of hijacking it, that was of concern. And there was some missile concern, uh, the testing of uh, over in North Korea recently. But is, it, is this really a realistic thing that they need heat-seeking missile, de you know, detection and avoidance systems? Yes. And I worked on a system 15 years ago-ish. It was about that same time after the 2003 incident happened that uh, there was uh, a minor effort, I'll call it, not well-publicized effort to add anti-missile technology to commercial airplanes and particularly cargo planes because cargo planes go places that maybe passenger planes don't go all the time or are in there uh, and there's sort of American targets there all the time. It's one of those places where American, either uh, UPS or FedEx or and, and DHL, because it's European, uh, are in and out of countries that, you know, United Airways or airlines won't go into, right? So your opportunities to take a, a shot at, a, at a, an American-based plane are limited, and it, it may be just freighters. And the, the freight companies were concerned about it, and they're still concerned about it, because there have been other incidents. Uh, there was an airplane just shot up the other day. I forget where that was. Uh, where a rocket hit the side of the airplane on the ground. I was like, oh man, this is bad. But the the you know the the, the laser systems, like I said, have been around fifteen plus years, and I think they've been using them overseas in limited scope. And now they want to roll it out a little more expansively. The real the issue safety wise, Dan, is that 
if they go off inadvertently, they send a bunch of lasers <laughs> energy into the, uh, around the airplane. So if it went off on the ground, you had uh, baggage workers or people refueling the airplane and that system went off, you could hurt somebody's eyes. I think that's the, the real threat. Um, and it would not be good. Uh, but from a safety standpoint, it adds safety to the airplane. It may add a little bit of a drag to the airplane because it tends to be this pod that goes on the bottom of the airplane on the back. Uh, and the technology is there. I guess the question is, are we, <laughs> from a perception standpoint, I don't think American Airlines is going to be putting on anti-missile technology on the airplanes. Is it just looks bad? Like, would you get on an airplane which you knew had anti-missile technology on it? You think, man, where am I going? I'm just going to Cleveland. Is it rough in Cleveland today or what? It's weird to think that, well, you'd want to have more safety measures. Like, do you, do you, do you want to wear a bike helmet or do you want to ride on a path that just like wouldn't possibly need a bike helmet? Yeah, but I think I, I think on the general populace would be concerned if they had or on an airplane had anti-missile technology on it. And maybe maybe the general public wouldn't even care. I, mean, I that just to be known. The the freight community does care though. And it makes a lot of sense to protect their pilots and their and their aircraft uh, to to add this onto aircraft. Uh, you're going to see more of it, not less. For sure. Who is going to be shooting down or shooting at cargo planes? I mean, isn't that a, just a straight up act of war? I mean, is there any country that, that wants to start a war with the United States over cargo? It's not over cargo. It's it's more of like Iraq has had incidences, uh, uh, Libya, Syria. There's a number of countries that, that they've had. It's not the government. It's not the formal government's taking shots at airplanes, right? It's it's it's. Uh, uh, radicalized groups that tend to be taking shots or, or, or groups that have uh, angst against the Americans or British or whoever and are out there with a rocket launcher and sit at the end of the airport, right? Your, your, your worst case scenario is what happened to DHL, which is someone sitting at the end of the runway with a hand, uh, you know, shoulder mounted rocket launcher taking a shot at the airplane when it's vulnerable, right from the bottom, right? And that's, that's a scary proposition. So that anything you can do to try to, to minimize those situations you want to do. I guess that's fair. So I guess it's kind of like a scaled up version of a, a kid throwing a rock at a car. Like not really as much an act, act of war as really just some idiot insurgent who decides on that day to take a shot at a thing that he can, that's, you know, in range. Right, right. Well, moving on to our EVTOL segment today, uh, some big news on Joby, which it's good to see the conspicuousness, I suppose, of some of these companies, Joby definitely being one of them, because we talked, uh, sort of lamented last year about not a lot of these companies are, you know, putting their vehicle, their aircraft where their mouth is, and they're talking about flights, but they're not taking flights. But now Joby wants to conduct uh, some flights over San Francisco Bay, which uh, you know, the headlines have been dramatic flights over San Francisco Bay. I'm not sure what exactly Alan is dramatic about. I mean, if you're in the air, you're in the air, right? It doesn't matter if there's water beneath you or um, buildings beneath you or, you know, desert beneath you. But um, it seems like they're getting pretty brazen about, hey, let's fly this thing around. Yeah, well, I think they need the PR right now. If you look at stock prices, all the stock prices of those SPAC eVTOL companies are, are down. Joby being one of them, and and they need a little more PR. I think that would help them tremendously on on just showing their hand a little bit on what the aircraft can do. I I still think you need to put some a pilot in the thing. If they if they do autonomous flights over San Francisco, the knock will be 
Well, it's empty. Who's there's nobody in it. Like, what's what's the downside here? Uh, I can't envision myself flying in this if they can't put a pilot in it today. Why would I want to get in it? Which is, I think, it's a very valid argument to be had. The the, the visuals are going to be great, though. I mean, you're flying around the Golden Gate Bridge. The images are fantastic, and they know they're that they're one of the key demographics. It's going to be Silicon Valley, San Francisco area in terms of having the 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 income level to afford these flights and to you know, fly from San Francisco to Tahoe or wherever people go in that neck of the woods. It's good. It's great PR. I think it makes great PR. I, I wonder if what the FAA is going to say though. Is the FAA going to say, hey, guys, you know, flying around San Francisco autonomously, we're not so cool with. Put a pilot in it, different story. We'll, we'll let you do that. Because I haven't seen a lot of, uh, like, flight test airplanes, early, I would call this early on in the flight test program, doing demo, what I would call demo flights or scenic flights, uh, advertising flights over populated areas. That's not what I have seen on other aircraft programs. Obviously, the the PR department would love to get that image for sure. But the FAA is going to be, it should be, hesitant to do it without having a lot of safeguards in place. Like what happens if, you know, the airplane starts to deviate where you guys, where are you guys going with it? And that's going to be hard in San Francisco, I think. Joby has two prototypes. I mean, why do you think at this point they're still wary about putting a, a pilot inside of it? That's a great question. I think everybody has done the same thing. I Beta may be the only one that has flown it with a pilot because Kyle Clark likes to likes to fly as a pilot. So I think he has taken Beta up. All the other ones, uh, Whisk, I don't think. Oh, no, Whisk has had a pilot in it. I've seen some early things from Whisk with a pilot in it uh, back in 2017. That's on YouTube. Uh, Heaviside from Kitty Hawk, I think is mostly autonomous. I don't think I've seen pilot in it. Uh, Archer has not had a pilot in theirs either. Lilium, I don't think I've seen a pilot in theirs. Yeah, it seems to be all the rage, right? It's all autonomous. Let's just do our flight test autonomous in the early stages. I don't know. That's a good question. I think it's um, it must be that they're concerned about having a, a human in the in the mix. Must be. That's the only reason that they, they could be, right? Uh, yeah, doesn't build confidence. But then again, you can't imagine that they're really concerned about their prototype going down. I mean, well, I, as the FAA, I think you would be sure. I mean. You just don't have enough experience with it. You may have zero. FAA may have zero experience with it. I'm sure Joby's going to come to them with a ton of flight test data and says, look how stable it is. Look how great it works. Look, we never had a, an issue in flight. Yeah, 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 yeah. Cool, right? The probability that the airplane crashes is, you know, one in a roughly billion. Um, so sure, right? But that isn't necessarily the way the FAA would see it. And when I saw this article the first time, I thought, well, this is interesting because... They're talking about Joby talking to the FAA about something that Joby wants to do. Typically, you do that behind doors. Like, you go to the FAA and say, hey, we're thinking about doing this. What do you think? You don't create an article <laughs> about it. Like, hey, we're talking to the FAA about flying over San Francisco. Uh, <laughs> what, what, what's the FAA going to say to you? <laughs> you know, you kind, of, you kind of have them over a barrel because if they don't let you do it, well, then they're the jerks. If, if they... If they allow you to do it and something go wrong, then the FAA is seen as not doing their job. So there's, is there any upside for the FAA in this situation? I, I would say no. Uh, all the benefits on Joby's side. And, and okay. It's, inter it's interesting because we don't, Textron's not doing this typically. <laughs> Boeing's not doing this typically. 
So it's a, just another avenue. Well, do you think they'll put weight in it? Do you think they'll put a dummy, you know, in there or 200 pounds of potatoes or anything? No, nope, that's all. And, and if you look at some of the discussions about their recent flight tests of, I think, 205 knots or whatever it was recently, it's unloaded. And it doesn't make any difference unloaded. When is an aircraft going to fly unloaded? It doesn't. It's going to be loaded with, hopefully, lots of people on it and, and some luggage, too. <laughs> that's that's the goal. So let's let's see what the performance numbers look like when you got it loaded. And that's what the industry, I think, is looking for. That sounds a little bit like a laptop battery life, stuff like that. They're like, oh, you know, this new laptop, 13 hours of battery life. As long as you don't do anything and the and the brightness is set to zero then you're good, you know? Works great. Beta is now partnering with the U.S. Army. And obviously, Beta Beta is winning support from a lot of big entities, UPS being one, Amazon being another. Um, yeah, their founder, Kyle Clark, um, he's seeming like a very qualified cowboy, just wants to go up in the plane and um, wants to move fast and seemingly not afraid to, to get his uh, craft up in the air for sure. And they seem like they're going in the right direction. But Alan, what is this uh, partnership with the Army all about? It's logistics-based. And I think the, the beta model is like the UPS, uh, Amazon aspects. It's cargo. They seem to find a, a niche in cargo. And that, that would interest the U.S. Army because what's most of an Army? Getting logistics people, materials to the, to the proper site at the proper time. And having other options besides a, a C-17 relying on the Air Force or somebody to, to, to drive uh, opens up doors for them. And it's just sort of the helicopter thing with the, uh, we've always had helicopters with the Army, right? So that, that, that it sort of fits into their wheelhouse of, hey, we've got this small aircraft and we want to haul in munitions or, a, you know, some sort of light armament in or medical supplies into, um, you know, a battle site. Let's check this out. And and that's what's going to happen. I think what, what Beta is going to do is, is show them they can do what kind of missions it can do and let the Army figure out where it could be used and then really determine if if there's a, a need for it on the, on the military side. From Beta's perspective, there's really nothing to lose here because if you can get some orders, let's say it's 50 orders out of the Army on a military version, that really helps your bottom line. And, and they, I think the Air Force is doing the same thing with Joby right now and uh, Kitty Hawk. I think everybody's looking at looking at the cargo aspect of it and trying to see if there's a, a mission there. There's a lot of a lot of utility for, like you said, dropping provisions, getting a wounded soldier out of a place, bringing all sorts of things in those short, like, you know, what's the range going to be? A couple hundred miles at most. But there seems like if you can have a couple of these at a lot of different strategic points and bases, then... Um, make a lot of sense, especially maybe sh shuttling people to and from embassies, not necessarily an army specific use, but, um, yeah, just another way to get people, you know, obviously taking the, um, place of a helicopter in many incidences. And, and then the autonomous piece may come into play. This, I think this is where, uh, Kitty Hawk is going and some others is, and whisk is, Hey, look, there, there is a general marketplace with the U.S. military and other military agencies across the world of they're allowed to fly autonomous. They fly autonomous things all the time, right? That's what the Predator is. <laughs> and and uh, Global Hawk, and you can rattle off all the autonomous aircraft that are flying on the military services today. Well, you could have a ready market, marketplace because you don't have to have a pilot. The Army probably doesn't want a pilot in that situation. Great. Uh, so... 
what the military may do in terms of the aviation development is it may give them a bridge, a financial and a, and a time bridge where they can develop the technology and then the passenger commercial aspects may come a little bit later. That's what, and that's what it feels like with beta, right? That they're going to do the cargo thing. It gives them some flight hours. Uh, you know, having a good customer like a UPS is, is huge advantage marketing wise, but also getting some aircraft into the military will also help them learn a lot and bring cash to the business. Those are all great things. Smart move. Well, speaking of the expansion of urban air mobility, um, there's a quick article about uh, CAE, which they manufacture um, flight simulators. And Alan, I guess there's a big switch for flight simulation now that it's less mechanical. Is that right? And more, I mean, obviously avionics have been coming, becoming more digital over time. Um, but it, does this seem like this is going to be like a step change? in the way pilots are trained on EVTOLs versus like traditional aircraft? Yeah, I, I, there's a really, there's been some really good podcasts and, and YouTube discussion about this. Like Joby doesn't have any rudder pedals. So the way it flies is different than regular airplanes would. It flies more like a video game. And if you're creating simulators and trying to push pilots through pilot training and you will do it in a simulator, at least a significant portion of it because it's cheaper, less expensive to do. Uh, the the flight simulator people will have to try to ad adapt and try to create these flight simulators. And flight simulators are expensive, right? There's uh, that's one of the issues, right? This is one of the issues with the 737 Max. Uh, why they didn't want they didn't want to have Boeing didn't supposedly didn't want to have uh, training of the pilots because they all had to go back into the simulator. So you're talking about thousands and thousands of pilots running through simulator time, which is pretty expensive. You're something you're trying to avoid, right? Uh, but simulators are less expensive than flying the airplane. <laughs> so that's your alternative. That's why they like doing simulators because it's cheaper. But when they when they start creating uh, these eVTOLs, you, you kind of wonder if, if we're all going to get to some... If, if I'm developing a, a simulator, my dream is that the, all these eVTOLs are similar. Yeah, they converge. Yeah, they converge into the... None of them have rotor pedals. <laughs> Right? Or they all have this basic software uh, provisions to, to respond in these particular ways. So I don't have to go recreate the wheel every time because that's what happens now. Uh, a Citation jet doesn't fly like a Learjet, doesn't necessarily fly like a you know, 737 or an A320. <laughs> so the simulators become very unique things and uh, are just become expensive. So hopefully with this eVTOL thing, you're, what you're trying to avoid is significant pilot training costs. Simulators are one way to save on that, but it's also, it is also still an expense. We're not going to get into the how, how do you make a simulator, which seems very complex anyway. But is, is this a situation where they just sort of like need the, need the software from Joby and they need the software from someone else and then just sort of like run it on their thing? I mean, I'm sure in days past they had to sort of go in the cockpit and remanufacture or you know sort of reverse engineer what was there i assume i, I again I, I don't know the ins and outs of this it seems like a very difficult and complex task but it seems like it probably gets easier at least on the surface where it's just like if we have a screen and similar control like you know you get the physical controls built um but maybe putting in the avionics might be a little simpler since it's just like the software exists here they're not going to try to rebuild Joby's software, I assume, like that wouldn't really make any sense, would it? So um, they're going to try to get the flight control laws from Joby or the eVTOL maker. 
Right. So they're just trying to get the, the simulator to work just like the airplane does. So they're going to need a lot of, a lot of uh, flight control laws, some maybe some flight test data on responses to stuff and simulator. I mean, obviously, the aircraft manufacturers all have simulators on how the aircraft's supposed to perform. And they'll, they'll give that to the simulator company. But if you go inside some of these simulators, I mean, they're very, they, are, they are very specific to the airplane model. So you will see if uh, Joby's using Garmin. I'm not sure that's the case, but I assume that it is. If they're using Garmin, you're going you're gonna to see a Garmin display in front of you. You want to make it as real as possible because what you're trying to do is get the pilot familiar with the setup and where things are, but also put, put stress into them and see how they react because it's, it's sort of a feedback loop of how do pilots respond when this happens? Where do they go? And is the airplane designed right to handle a pilot maybe not acting correctly, right? The, 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 there's this nice little feedback loop in simulators that you no, don't necessarily get in the airplane or you don't want to have it happen in an airplane. So, I mean, like a good baseball analogy is just like, especially in youth baseball, amateur baseball, there's a very big difference in mounds for a pitcher. So, you know, when you get to pro baseball or high level college baseball, the pitching mound you pitch from is very stable, very consistent, same slope, same height, same clay. But when you're in youth ball, You'll pitch, you know, even if you hone your mechanics and everything is very repeatable and smooth and perfect, one day you're going to pitch from a gigantic mound with a huge hole, and next day from a very flat mound, also with a huge hole, but a very different huge hole. Um, and just, like, it, it's so different, and it's a, it seems like a small change, and over time, the best pitchers learn that mentally you make it a small change. Like, you can't, you know, you just sort of figure out how to adjust, but it definitely can throw you off. You're like, I feel like I don't know how to pitch doing this and if like you said if there's a mo even modest differences in a flight simulator you could be like this is th i feel a little uncomfortable and i feel a little nervous and my my anxiety is slightly higher because if i'm in a weird position this isn't exactly the same this isn't exactly how i've trained right and that's i think that's the simulator people have done a really good job if you actually go into a simulator the the, the realism is astounding it's astounding. Years ago, not so much. Today, it's amazing, the technology that's there. All right, well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Struck Aerospace Engineering Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe wherever you are on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, and leave us a review. We would greatly appreciate it. And share the show, and we will see you here next week on Struck. Strike Tape, WeatherGuard Lightning Tech's proprietary lightning protection for radomes, provides unmatched durability for years to come. If you need help with your radome lightning protection, reach out to us at weatherguardaero.com. That's weatherguardaero.com.